Hi everyone, my name is Ben Shields and welcome to Make Good, a monthly conversation with Australian artists, designers and entrepreneurs that examines the role of design in shaping society and culture. Christy Barber is a pattern maker who started Melbourne's slow fashion label Kawai as a response to the waste and philosophy of fast fashion. Over its 14-year life, Kawai has evolved to be an industry leader as a zero-waste, locally-made, ethical brand. Kawai's approach to making clothes centres around designing for forever and is a human-centred process that imagines how every person involved in the life cycle of the garments, from supply chain to purchaser, can benefit most from the decisions made by the design team. In this episode, we discuss how Christie's core values of durability and timelessness have shaped the brand, the criticism that the brand attracted as they developed a more inclusive size range, and the perception that many fashion brands are moving away from sustainability and transparency in the post-pandemic world. I really hope you enjoy it. Hey, Christy, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Hi, it's great to be here. Can you tell us what led you to start Kauai? Yeah, sure. Well, I started um, Clyde back in 2008. I had just graduated from fashion school and I studied at TAFE. Um, And I actually won a prize part of the L'Oreal Melbourne Fashion Festival that year, which was called Student Fashion Designer of the Year for a recent graduate. So um, the prize was marketing support in starting your own business and the competition was actually pitching a business idea to this panel of judges Um, and at that time I I remember actually that panel really clearly because and I'm pretty sure the reason that I won is because I had this very very clear idea for Kauai and what I wanted it to be and um, and that's what it did become so that gave me the impetus to start it then. I don't think I would have started it then if I hadn't have won that prize because I was planning to go and study, uh, sorry, to go and live abroad and work for designers and, and do that until eventually one day have my own business. But um, as things would have it, that's the way uh, it sort of unfolded for me. And can you tell us a little bit about what that clear idea looks like? The idea that I pitched to them was, I guess, a little bit simpler than what Kauai is now because we've had so many years now to kind of flesh it out and add more to it and change as well. But the simplest principle was beautifully made clothing that were made in timeless designs that were made particularly to last the wearer from season to season. So that means like not only be long lasting in terms of the quality of the piece, but also to be able to transcend uh, seasons and transcend changes in taste. So more seasonless um, and classical shapes. And I said to those judges that everything would be made in Melbourne, always made locally. And that would be a really strong principle So that was it. There was no language like slow fashion or fast fashion even really back then. (laughs) So, but the principle always was that is the core of what we do at Kauai. So longevity, um, durability, timelessness, they've always played a big role um, from the very start. Yeah. So as your uh, understanding of sustainability has grown, you've been able to develop the ways that are important to you in terms of how you want to 
to tackle it and mitigate its effects. Have has durability and and timelessness have those values still remained the most uh, important part of your philosophy around sustainability, or has is there is there something new? Has that has that shifted as well with your um, with your increased understanding? I think that still really is the core of it for us, anyway. And maybe other businesses and brands are different, but um, for us to offer a product that's designed for longevity and made of the best quality materials that we can source and made under the best working conditions that we can um, kind of find, then that for us is that is really sort of the ultimate. Um, but, you know, it's such a personal thing, this idea of sustainability and what's sustainable for one person, maybe not for the other. And that's something that I've always found interesting as well. Okay. There's a lot to dig into there. Um, if we just, maybe let's just go back a step. Um, what, what was the industry like when you, when you started Kauai uh, in terms of sustainability and ethical fashion? Um, and have you, you know, there, there must have been quite a dramatic shift since then, I assume. And it also was probably quite difficult because there was less information around and perhaps you were kind of um, sort of really um, doing your own thing in terms of sustainability more so than being able to look at how other people were doing it. Yeah, definitely. We, I mean, for the first probably three or four years of Kauai that I didn't say anything about um, the principles really that we were run on. Um, it was such a different world back then and the fashion world, they just weren't interested already for a conversation about that. And in a way I felt the reason why I didn't say it is because I felt I would be judged as a worse business or a worse brand if they knew that these principles were built into the brand. And, um, I think that was the case. Like you were sort of expected back then. I mean, it wasn't that long ago, but it's sort of like about a million fashion years ago <laughs> um, to like we had to sort of have this outward show that we were this big polished brand um, that, yeah, it was just a very different world in terms of how you sort of had to pitch yourself as a, as a new brand coming out. Um, which just is completely different now. Like there's so much respect for DIY and, um, you know, made to order. And I mean, made to order in that there's like a single person designing and making the pieces of clothing as their business. Like that would never have existed back then. So, and the conversation has just completely changed. So I've seen it go from actually, let's not tell anyone that we're trying to be ethical or sustainable because we'll be judged <laughs> um, to that just like the twinklings of it coming in and now to this like fully fledged movement, I guess you would call it, mm, beyond yeah. movement. It's just now it's the way of life um, yeah. where even the biggest, most corporate brands are following more sustainable and ethical principles. So, yeah, it's been a really interesting 13 
or so years to witness in the fashion industry. Mm, I can imagine. And when you say uh, you felt like there was a bit of judgment around or a lot of judgment around from other brands, is that from from larger brands in particular or just do you think everyone sort of was was not really thinking about it or were there other people like you that were actually, you know, really starting to care about this sort of thing? Uh, there probably were, yeah. There were probably yeah. lots of like bubbling bubbling up but um, it was kind of more the infrastructure of the fashion industry. Like say, okay. for example, the fashion weeks, they wouldn't have said like <laughs> they would have chosen you on certain reasons and the ethics and sustainability would have been something you did not mention to them back then. Or if you were trying to get into a store um, or like trying to gain a um, it, like a boutique on your as a stockist, you know, for example, that you would maybe not have mentioned it to them. But I think in terms of like real people, real people were probably starting to pay attention back then. But uh, it was just the start of the start of the turning of the tide. But um, in terms of the, I guess I mean that judgment came more from the wider fashion infrastructure. Sure, yeah. sure. Okay. Was there a point that you saw the scales kind of tilt and you thought, wow, it seems like this is actually a thing now, yeah. sustainability and fashion? I think I it's so hard to sort of remember looking back, but I did see a video of myself talking recently and it was a video from 2011 and in that video I was talking publicly about um, our principles and what we believed in and what we're trying to achieve. So I think it must have been about then, so between sort of the mid-2000s to uh, around 2010, 2011, and then the shift grew stronger and stronger yeah. And um, it was really quite amazing. Like at first it felt like there was people starting to be interested and then, yeah, I mean, as you probably know from <laughs> it just sort of snowballed and became this, yeah, a huge movement. And do you think that we have a responsibility as designers to try and change the industries that we work in? Um, it's interesting because... I, I mean, I guess if you worked in an industry where everything was perfect and running like amazingly and um, there was no wastage and every person and animal and living being in the supply chain was treated fairly, then maybe not. But, yeah, I mean, designers are designing things for a better world. So I, I kind of feel like it is part of... The response. I mean, for me personally, I feel like it is definitely a responsibility. If you're bringing something into the world, a product, I feel like there is a responsibility that that product makes the world better and not worse. Mm. And does does that connect to your, uh, you know, uh, design values? Your desire to actually create stuff that works and functions really well, or do you think that's more a connection just to to your personal ethos and philosophy. I think it's definitely tied into the Kauai product as well. So let's talk a bit about the Kauai stores. Can you describe the feeling of walking into a 
Kawhi store and, and what are the absolutely essential features that we should know about? Yes, sure. Um, well, the first thing I will mention is our signature scent that will um, overcome one's nostrils with its beautiful floral aromas and um, it's funny how much of a huge impact that has on people. Um, we introduced that back in about 2017 because we thought it would be fun to have a signature scent, but it's really become tied into our physical space, our product, uh, and it sort of defines us in a way. And because smell is so tied to memory, um, I think it triggers something really beautiful for our customers and people who know the brand. Um, and other than that, the spaces, we always try and find uh, shells, I guess, the physical shell of the space that is, I guess, old or quaint or has some element of interest to it. Um, and then from there we try and make it into our own little pastel wonderland with colours that are drawn from our branding palette and our sort of ongoing kawaii colours. Um, we so is that durability, it sounds like you're sort of picking older buildings that can be retrofitted. Are you, are you saying that you, you might pick something that's got less character, sorry, that's got more character that you could do less to? Um, and I'm just wondering if that all sort of ties in with the, with the, kind of the ethos around durability and timelessness. Yeah, yeah. You know, I've never really thought of that before, but I think it does for sure. And, you know, where possible we will source secondhand um, or vintage items to fit out our shops and um, that whole kind of reuse, repurpose and use what you have, um, that ethos does run through everything that we do. Um, you know, we would never, it just does not feel right that, Kauai would have a store in the bottom of a new apartment block kind of thing. Like that just doesn't fit with who we are. Um, yeah, our stores, we, I mean, I would say we don't um, have a massive, huge budget for our shop fit outs as well. So there's an element of the, um, I feel like the space is quite relatable for people and people really enjoy being in there, their comfortable spaces and our change rooms are also designed just to make women or the people who are trying on clothes there feel very comfortable and at home and um, private as well. So we always have mirrors in the change room so people don't have to come out if they don't feel like it. And the change rooms are always in a separate room from the main shop as well. So, Could you just unpack a bit more about some of those design features for the, um, for the change rooms that help people feel comfortable because I think it's a really a really important translation of your ethical values into your physical space yeah well the I mean they're always designed to be yeah this kind of separate and when I say separate they are kind of in the same space but um they never enter into the main space of the shop so that customers have a private space and also when customers if they do feel comfortable to step out of the change room that's 
space is separated from the shop as well. So it's like annexed <laughs> away twice, I guess. Um, so, and also thinking about where the uh, view from the front window hits the change rooms as well. Um, you know, for people walking past, making sure that you can't look in and see the person in that what I think is a very intimate moment when you're assessing something um, and if you want to buy it. I mean, I, I used to feel a lot in shops in Melbourne that there was, I just didn't think it was a very nice shopping experience. I think people, shop assistants were quite rude. No one had put thought into their spaces in this way. And actually all I was thinking is that why isn't anyone doing it in this other way? Like this other way seems like it would be so much nicer for people to to experience. And, um, yeah, and I think it has been overall for our customers. <laughs> well, I can certainly identify with, you know, going into a change room and feeling like I was under pressure or I might be made to come out. Yeah. and um, that's a universal thing, isn't it? Like yeah. Everyone has had that moment. <laughs> yeah. Probably multiple times. Yeah. And I, um, I think it's really enjoyable shopping for clothes and to be hassled by, a, you know, someone who's trying to get you to show them what you're wearing is it really does detract from that experience a bit, I think. Yeah, agreed. And, um, well, I guess further from that as well, we've spent so much time on the physical presence of our staff in the stores as well so that that experience should never happen in a Kauai store, um, that it should be just a really pleasant experience for the shopper and the shoppie. <laughs> um that we tell our staff that we want it to feel like they're shopping with a friend and the staff member is the friend that's supporting them through that purchase. So I think that makes a huge difference as well, the person that's with you. And what were some of the challenges that you might have faced when you were thinking about the design of your stores? Um, well, I guess it's sort of achieving what we want to achieve on a relatively small budget is probably um, one of the main challenges. And I guess finding the spaces themselves is always um, a bit of a challenge. And when we've opened stores, it's never been through this grand plan, really. It's been that a great space has presented itself to us. Yep. Um, so the space has always sort of informed the the existence of the shop rather than the other way. So, um, yeah, probably those two things, like finding the space itself and just achieving what we want to on a, on a small business budget. It's always tricky, yeah. un- unfortunately. <laughs> um, and you know what? It doesn't really – I think it's rare to find a project where – budget isn't, um, you know, the main or one of the main drivers, you know, it just doesn't really matter how big the project is. It always plays a big role. Um, The budget is huge. It's still never not enough. (laughs) Basically, (laughs) basically, um, it's always tricky to get, um, expectations to align with, with budgets. Um, but that is, I think a whole other conversation. (laughs) Um, so one of the things I was, 
really impressed by and uh, you know learned a lot from was the sustainability section on your on your website. What I'd like to start by talking about is just um, understanding the the intention behind that, and I think it seems to me that it's not just about um, convincing or or educating consumers, but also possibly about your peers in the industry. Is that is that right, or is it just just about the consumer? Um, I guess with information that we put publicly like that, I guess it it is about I guess proving ourselves in some way publicly. I mean, mostly we consider our customer when we write that, and you know now that um, I mean it's been. The journey of sustainability on our website. <laughs> so I think the first time we actually kind of revealed more transparency was about five or six years ago. So really not that long ago, um, about halfway through our business life. And, um, and at that point, there was a trend with businesses to really, I guess maybe that was sort of the when people really started to want to know the information because that's what I did remember feeling that sort of it went from not wanting to know to people wanting to know everything quite quickly. And um, so we developed that information to really cover all bases that a customer might need. Um, I guess we didn't really think about it as setting an example. We thought about wanting to do the best and like offer the most that we could. But then I think there's since then been a bit of a movement away from sharing that much information because um, we have been looking at sort of, I guess, peer brands lately and that's very rare to see any information like what we have on our website anymore. You really just get a paragraph or two of quite (laughs) vague information. So, yeah, it's interesting to see how, the I guess the the information that's provided changes over time too and I'm imagining that's as customers preferences change they're driving that but I'm not sure for us we we just really want to I mean we do a lot and we really don't talk about it that much a lot of what we do is very quiet or it's hidden in a little tiny line on our, you know, on a deep page of our website. So for us, it is important that it's quite comprehensive. So are you saying that five years ago, you might've seen more information on someone else's website? Yeah. And there's been a shift to less. Yeah. Okay. Definitely. Um, And less and more vague information as well. You know, there was this real, push towards like full transparency for a while there in fashion anyway, where, um, you know, you'd look at a product page and it would say this cost us $5 for the fabric and the manufacturer cost us this much um, and sort of have the full breakdown of why that piece is being sold for the cost that it was. But um, that's something that I don't really see much, so much anymore. That's interesting. So why do you think that is? I mean, Yes. Well, why have consumer tastes driven that to to happen, do you think? Yeah. I mean, I guess it's probably to do with the pandemic potentially 
because it okay. probably is about that time, I would think. And I do think um, that there has been maybe a slight shift for people as well. I know people want to do the very best that they can, but it's been a hard time for a lot of people and maybe the commitments they made to their ethical shopping habits are not as important now than they were before the pandemic. Um, I'm not sure 100%, but those are some things that I've thought maybe could be impacting it. But um, I would love to know. Maybe you can ask one of those brands next time and find out. It's very interesting because I I did notice that even some of the other um, brands locally that are quite ethical had a minimal amount of information on their website, which I, I was a little bit surprised about um, because I I want to know more, you know. Yeah. I want to know what they're doing and what it means to to practice in that way. So, yeah, I was was a bit surprised. Yeah, I am too. And, I mean, to be honest, we were thinking about editing ours down and taking out a few of the pages. But um, we ran a customer survey recently and so many customers brought up things that they'd read on those pages and people are actually reading the information and absorbing it. So that was a good, it was a good lesson. We're not going to take it down. <laughs> Look, I'm no mark, fashion marketing <laughs> expert, but it, you know, there's a lot of really interesting stuff there. So, um, I mean, a lot of it has helped me write these questions for you. So, <laughs> so for future podcasters, I think it's definitely important. Um, so one of the headings that I, that really stuck out for me, um, that I wanted to chat to you about was designing for forever. Do you want to give us an outline of what goes into designing for forever? Yeah, well, I mean, to me, there's an element of forever as well, right? Because a piece of clothing, as much as we would love, love it to last forever and ever, you know, it's not a eternal item like some of the things you would make probably. Well, not as eternal as you might think as well, to be honest. I don't think anything is. But yeah, anyway. it's true, isn't it? But what, um, what I guess I really hope to achieve in Kauai items is just that they are items that hold their value for the wearer and that could be multiple different wearers over a long period of time. And that long period could be like 30, 50, 100 years. And when I first started Kauai, and actually now um, still vintage clothing uh, was one of my great passions and joys and I remember looking at you know, like these beautiful things that I would find from, you know, not really even that old. It could be from the 80s or the 90s, the 70s, and obviously even older, but um, just seeing the, how they, they were made back then and the care that went in them and the fabric quality and how the workmanship was. And I wanted kawaii items to have that feeling now. So that's one something that I always come back to. And so that when someone picks up that piece of kawaii in an op shop or a market in 30 years' time, they can feel that still then and that stays with that garment. And it means that it has a value that lasts and lasts and lasts. Like we talk about composting our garments at the end of life, but really that should never have to happen unless, you know, and we do see some things like this too because people really love their kawaii 
and they do wear it really hard sometimes. So, I mean, that's the option for that end of life. But really the idea is that you wear it and you treat it well and you care for it and you mend it when you can and that item goes on. And what um, what are some of the design, uh, I suppose, you know, um, design or, the, or the, the methods that you'd use to help help ensure that these these items last for a long time? Well, I guess the there's the physical aspects to it, which are the um, material yep. that the product is actually made out of. And um, we've never, ever cost cut on any kind of material choice ever in the history of Kauai. That's something I'm really proud of, actually. So we'll always use the best quality zips, the best quality trims, we don't go hold on there's this cheaper one over here let's use that we just go let's use the best we can um and we always try and source the very best quality fabrics we can as well Uh, and we try and work with fabrics we've used before on suppliers we've used before so there's like an element there that you know we can trust um but then onto the more i guess yeah, the less physical elements of what makes an item carry a value. Um, I guess removing some of the trend from it, though we're in fashion, so like keeping half an eye on the trends is important. Um, But we try to always keep our colour palette very... I mean, we use a lot of colour, but we think about colour really carefully and we use it in a way that is, um, you know, we use muted shades and shade, tonal shades that work together. Um, and the fit of the garment as well, like how it fits, that's really important for something to have a, an ongoing value, how it um, makes the wearer feel when they wear it. And that comes down often to scale, um, design details and the fit of the garment. And I guess the final thing would be the quality of the manufacturer as well. Yeah, so we only work with a few local makers and um, they really love their work, those makers. And I think you can tell when you look at kawaii items that they're made really beautifully and that quality does does let the garment last. I'd like to come back to the local made um, side of what you do, but let's talk a little bit about the uh, the fabrics and the and the textiles. So there's quite a few um, rayon and viscose, uh, linen, cotton, hemp, tensile. Is it lyocell? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, you were saying that you often use uh, similar fabrics sort of going forward. Is It sounds like that, that um, I suppose, setting those parameters so that you kind of know how those fabrics work is quite important. Do you, how often do you bring a new fabric in and what, what sort of research processes would you undertake to, to make sure that it could, could work? Yeah, well, um, well, I guess every season we we bring in new fabrics. Um, 
So our ranges are divided into two sections, the classics, which are the ongoing styles that rarely or never change, and then the seasonal items. And the seasonal items would have new fabrics every um, every season. And, yeah. and those new fabrics undergo a fairly rigorous in-house quality testing um, program as well, which we've devised over the years of making mistakes, I might add. <laughs> um, and so now we've learnt we run really thorough wash tests, we run peeling tests, we run shrink tests and through hand washing, machine washing, dry cleaning. So we have um, like really good systems for the fabrics that we work with. And then the classic items, the ongoing ones, they're the ones that will remain in the sort of tried and tested fabrics that um, the customers have kind of come to know and love. I think that'd be a great outcry if we ever changed those ones. So it's also a balance of changing the products and the fabrics enough to feel relevant and new because that is what people want from their clothing brand (laughs) and not enough to feel like you're constantly reinventing the wheel or sort of become caught up on the treadmill of fashion and still maintaining this idea of classic timelessness as well so that's a delicate balance I think Mm. hopefully we get it right I'm not sure always um so it sounds like uh or is it is it necessary to um sometimes use fabrics that might be less um environmentally friendly and how do you I suppose how do you kind of um reconcile that um, when it's a necessity That's a tricky one for us Um, and I think there was a fork in the road a couple of years ago where we thought like either we have to go down this road where we go everything or every fabric we source is um, sourced from an identified source, we can trace it Um, or the other option is we use some fabrics that I guess are considered less sustainable, but we're transparent about it to our customers. Um, And the reason we decided, we have decided so far to go to option B is the fact that some of those non-sustainable fibres, I guess we will call them, are incredibly long-lasting and add some actually really good principles to the fabric, especially when they're mixed into another natural fibre as a small percentage of the blend. So, for example, a linen with a 3% spandex or a 97% cotton with a 3% poly, like that means that garment actually will last years and years and years longer and it'll be much easier to wash for the customer and you won't need to ever tumble dry it. It will dry really quickly on the line. So because of those principles of longevity and that that was what I really wanted to do when I started, we have kept those fabrics in our range for now. And we'll maybe review that. You know, we have this larger goal to be fully circular by um, 2025. But, um, you know, that's I'm not sure about that. That is a one tricky thing for us that we've really had to weigh between the two 
the two um, sides, I guess. Between practicing fashion in a circular way as to a traditional way? Yeah. Uh, I know more um, balancing, I guess, using the odd synthetic fibre but lengthening the lifespan of the garment by doing that. Mm. Well, there is definitely a tension there, um, but it sounds like you have come back to this value that was central to the, to the, to the business from the start. And so it, it sounds like for you maybe that, that, um, that decision is a little easier yeah, that's true. I need to write that in big, huge letters and sticky tape it on the wall and just look at it every time I'm confused. Yeah, so it is. Well, it's so it's not as clear then. It is actually a still a, an ongoing tricky thing. Um, it's 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 a push and pull, I think, because okay. we're always yeah. trying. You know, we're always reevaluating. We're always trying to get better. Yeah. Um, the thing about synthetic fibers is it would be yeah, it's very hard for us to find uh substitutes for all the fabrics that we use as well so but you know the great thing that's happening is every year more and more with the extra demand there's more and more fabric options more and more fabric suppliers providing um more natural versions of the synthetics so yeah i think it will get better as time goes on as well what does it mean to be a circular fashion brand um, that means that you create no, I mean, the, I guess no waste or the waste that you do create is positive waste. So that is that it can be composted or biodegrades, leaving no negative residue on this world, world's surface. So it's pretty amazing as a vision to work, work towards. Um, and we have <clears throat> worked really hard towards that with the recent inclusion of our garment and textile recycling program, which is something we launched uh, in 2020 in the, lock- the Melbourne's <laughs> long lockdown and we kind of didn't really tell anyone about it. And so it's been a very private thing that we've just done really. It does appear on our website as you've probably read about it there. <laughs> But we developed a relationship with a textile recycler who were in Melbourne um, and they take our scraps. We pay for them to take our scraps and the logistics of getting our scraps back from our makers as well. So that's something that we've had to build this extra step of logics into our business and build the cost into the um, cost of the product because I think that's really important that the cost of the product includes the cost for the end of that product's lifespan as well. So when you buy a piece of kawaii, you're buying the waste service for the offcuts that that piece of clothing created. Um, yeah, and our offcuts get sent over there and they sort them, they hand sort them, they use what they can use and the rest gets um shredded and turned either into new fabrics or textile products like uh, insulation, batting, packaging, things like that. And at the same time, we launched our garment recycling program. So that is where our customers can return their end-of-life kawaii 
Um, and when we first introduced this, we kind of thought that we would be getting a lot of sort of, I guess, more broken down pieces. But um, actually people are just returning their old garments that can be mended and have a complete new life. So that's been really inspiring. But usually we just might mend a zip or fix a hem and then we give that garment a new life as well. So those are our two major steps so far in becoming circular. Um, and, yeah, our waste has has gone down really considerably since we started that program about 18 months ago. Is one of the big challenges education of, of the consumer because it seems like this, the circular system requires um, a lot of understanding and willingness to participate in that system on the behalf of the consumer. Yeah, that's true. I mean, you're relying on the customer, I guess, a lot to know what's the best practice for that garment as well or that piece of footwear. Um, but, I mean, I think just the first thing that you can do as a business or a brand is to offer the service. And I think um, I really think not. It's, a, it's an unfamiliar thing for customers still. It's not um, yet just a sort of comfortable thing. There might be some sort of hesitations in in that program. I think it will probably take a few kind of years for that level of end of life to become a mainstream thing. Um, but I think all, all businesses that produce an item should be responsible for the end. Of, like imagine that. Imagine if you could return anything that you ever bought that you'd finished with that was maybe not able to be resold or passed on to the place of purchase or manufacture. Do you think that would make your life easier? I think it would make the world a a significantly less wasteful place (laughs) for sure. Um, As long as that business were treating their products with respect that were returned you know some so many of these massive big companies like their products really they mean nothing to them so if mm-hmm. they had that program they'd probably just put them in the landfill whereas every single kawaii piece that mm-hmm. they've ever made that is like a precious piece of gold to us <laughs> mm. and we will do anything that we can to repair it and keep it going and um, deliver it into its next incarnation <laughs> I think it would be really interesting to see what would happen with big companies and and packaging like a Coca-Cola or a Smith's. I mean, if they had to be responsible for their packaging or their products, I think we'd see the whole system shift. Can you imagine? That would be amazing if plastic Mm. bottle manufacturers were responsible for so I've noticed that Kawhi has quite a large range of sizes from size 4 to size 22 and there's also quite a lot of diversity in the models that you choose across age, ethnicity and body type. What was the journey like for Kawhi to become a more inclusive brand? Yeah, well, um, I mean, now expansion into the sizes 18, 20 and 22 was only very recent. Yeah. We've just launched that now. Um, and from going or sort of, I guess, living that experience, I've thought back and, and how that we, how we sort of did become a bit more inclusive and we, 
when we started, I mean, it was such a different world back then as well because we didn't really feel like we had the um, the call for it. When we first started, we were size 6 to uh, 14 brand. I mean, and even that was considered like more inclusive than a lot of other local brands were doing at the time. Um, but over the time and as things changed, you know, and that's one thing that I've really tried to do at Kauai is really listen to our customers and be quite attuned to them and what they're asking for. And over time, you know, I saw our average size shift up a size or two and, you know, people began asking. So that's when we stepped up a size and we began to offer a size 16. So that was our first sort of step into more inclusive sizing and that was in 2018. And um, the year after that we decided to offer uh, an 18 in our tailored pants and that was received really well. So we've just kind of tested the waters little bit by little bit and slowly um, added sizes listened to our customers, got the feedback and then expanded from there. And that's worked really well for us as well because I'm, it's a really big, um, it's a, re- a lot of work uh, designing a new capsule collection for what's essentially a sort of a new customer. And that's what we did definitely find with this capsule collection. Um, you know, I feel like in a way it would be like for us to make a menswear collection or something like that. We're getting to know this whole other group of people that we don't have this history with. And um, so we did a lot of customer polls and surveys and ask people and fit a lot on our fit model. And, um, yeah, and this is our first season where we've, we've stepped it up, I think, as as a business and we're now offering more inclusive size range and I just really felt like as well like it's time for us to do it um and that sort of gut feeling I guess has always informed our expansion (laughs) what's a capsule collection um that's like a smaller smaller release I guess I see so it's part of our main collection but it's like a smaller release within that collection so it sounds like that listening part to what your to that to the design process is is really really key to understanding the market um, and what it's possible to provide. Yeah, definitely. I feel like um, we have a really close ear. I mean, I because in the olden days of Kauai, when we just had the one store, it was literally me sitting behind a curtain listening to the customers speaking on the shop floor. <laughs> So I developed, I think, from all of those years spent working there, just a lot of knowledge about what our customers think and um, what they say as well when they're trying things on, what they like and what they don't like. So, um, And we've definitely been a brand that's listened as well, whereas I think a lot of other brands are kind of like, well, we do what we do and we don't really care, whereas we mm. are a bit more collaborative mm. with our customers, I think. And do you think that ties back to what you were saying earlier about wanting to be or will an expectation in the fashion industry to to do a certain type of fashion? Maybe. Yeah, potentially. It could be. 
just because our customer, our relationship with our customer has been stronger. Working in my industry, and that's the design and construction industry, working as an architect, there is this perceived pressure and judgment from or, or between architectural practices that means that that architects produce architecture and images of their architecture that focuses more on artistic and experiential qualities that other architects find really appealing and, and less so on perhaps the functional um, outcomes that, that the typical um, consumer or the general public might find really appealing. And I'm just wondering if there's a similar form of judgment going on in the fashion industry that that means that brands are less likely to have a larger side range, um, larger size range because it, they, you know, there's this, this kind of idea or, or judgment around that, that somehow diluting the art of, of what they do. Yeah, it could be. And there's probably is a bit of that kind of judgment, I guess. I wouldn't put it past fashion brands because fashion is fashion. <laughs> I often think that like we're not in fashion, we're in clothing. And that's how I separate it for myself because I don't really like the fashion industry, I have to say, just between you and me. <laughs> I won't tell anyone. <laughs> um, it's not great. Um, and I often think that if I, you know, my life had been different and I didn't start my own business, I had gone and worked for this large fashion brand, would I even be in fashion anymore? I don't know if I would because it's not a wholesome area to work in. <laughs> But we've carved out our own little world um, that is separate to that um, and that it is wholesome and it is warm and it is inclusive and we try to do our best, real, really do our best by all of our customers and by our team, by the people who work for us, our suppliers, like we really do try and do good. But, yeah, there's, um, yeah, there's a lot of... There's a lot of stigma and judgment out there in the fashion world. What does it look like to to be inclusive in terms of, of branding? Um, how do you think uh, if you see a collection, do you do you sort of think to yourself straight away, oh, that doesn't look particularly inclusive, or do you? Is there something um, that you you notice when you think a brand has got it right, or is you know, could you unpack that a little bit? Yeah, I think that when a brand has got it right, it should appear like no effort was made. And that really is how it should be. It should be that this wasn't a pitch made by some marketing guru to, you know, like reach a new customer. Um, this should be like something that came from within the brand and that really means something to them. And it should be done in such a way that doesn't really look like they're trying to be inclusive because, I mean, that's really what it should be, right? It should be not an effort is made to be inclusive. It should be that you deeply just are inclusive yeah. to the people around you. So um, that's what I think. And, you know, some people uh, do it really well, I think, integrate it really well. And um, I have seen people get called out for doing it badly as well. Really mean pull down. <laughs> mm, <laughs> really I've a little bit as well. Yeah, and it is it is tricky, you know, because when we opened ourselves up for this, we sort of did it with the knowledge that we're, you know, that we're going to probably get called out in some way. 
Um, and do you know of all the things that we've ever sort of stepped out of the mainstream on, like when we first started using models that were over 50 or when we first started using models who were not white, um, this has definitely been the thing that's touched the most nerves, the expanded size range. Okay. And we've had some really, you know, it's just really interesting to see what it unleashes in people's minds. <laughs> and is that from other, is that from consumers or other brands? Yeah, I'm not sure if they're customers as such, but may, maybe sort of social media followers kind of thing. Who are perceiving that you're doing something wrong? More that the way the things they're willing to comment about people who are a different size, perhaps. Okay. More just about how far we have to come as a society when it comes to being truly inclusive. So are these, sorry, I just want to try and get to the bottom of this a little bit more, but are these people making negative comments about your brand for having an increased range of sizes because you're doing that not in the right way or because they think that you just shouldn't have an increased range of size? Um, probably more that they think we're doing it wrong. Wrong. Okay, okay. Yeah. So and what? how would you do it better or what, what do people say? I don't know. It's hard to know because um, we definitely feel like we were a bit tentative with this first collection as well because there was so much to learn. I actually probably underestimated how much there was to learn, I think. And it's I have sort of seen that commentary on social media as well where people are like, well, how hard can it be? Like you make clothes, just make them bigger, but it's it's quite a complicated process because also we wanted it to be really good. Um, and so that meant not only sort of relearning about this new customer and like what their preferences might be, things they like and dislike, and I'm talking about like sleeve lengths and what's practical for them, but then regrading all of our blocks. So the block is the template that we base all of our patterns off, so the physical shape of the human form. And is that is a block like a, a mannequin type thing? It's actually we use cardboard patterns. So, okay. yeah, it's a, for us it's cardboard. A lot of people use computer, but we like to do it the old style way. <laughs> cool. Um, so we redeveloped those. We reworked our whole sizing chart. So we had to re-sort of learn about um, what breakdown each size would be in terms of the measurements. And then we obliterated sizes small, medium, large and extra large. We did that on customer feedback. People found that very uninclusive. Mm. Um, we had to source new models, new fit models. So anyway, it was a very long and complicated process. So, and I'm not, I can't stand here and say, look, I got this perfectly right, but I did what I felt like was a good first step to learn from and in a constant evolution of making those products better and better and better for the customer. Um, so back to your original question, which was about the person who asked. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, what was you, what was? What was oh, the original question. Oh, look, I just, I, I think you've answered, answered it really well. Just wondering the sorts of things that people would have a problem oh, with. Because, yeah. yeah. But I, look, I think. 
So basically she's kind of saying that the different people were saying that it could have been better. Okay. And I'm saying we really tried our hardest. <laughs> Look, one of the things I've, I've read is that um, brands will, will be criticised when they try and um, do when, when they try and shift the way they do things, and that that as long as that they can keep listening, then um, and not not become defensive, then it it really makes all the difference in in ensuring that they can actually deliver on the the thing that they've set out to. Yeah, that's so true. That's so true, and it is you know it is an interesting learning curve as well about what people think. I feel like each thing, each interaction with the customer, we learn more about them positive, negative, or neutral. <laughs> okay. So I'm really interested to find out a bit about um, just the financial implications of, of, of working like this because it, it it's obvious that you guys have spent a, a huge amount of time, you know, not just designing the clothes but designing your processes around, around the production um, of those clothes so that everything's very, you know, minimal waste and all the other things we've discussed. Um, how do you you balance that up against, you know, a, a brand that's making everything offshore um, and is potentially, you know, able to have a much higher profit margin or or sell more units? How do you um, how do you reconcile that and, and stay comfortable with the the spot that you're in? Yeah, that's a that's a funny one because there's a, quite a lot of brands in Melbourne who are probably around about the same price point as Kauai, I would say, and they're all made in various offshore locations. Um, and so I have kind of kept myself a little bit uneducated about offshore manufacturing. I kind of feel like that's the best way for me. It's like an ignorance is bliss situation. <laughs> um because I literally don't know how much it would cost to get a kawaii garment manufactured offshore. Firstly, I think best not to be tempted. And secondly, um, I just don't want to know. I don't want to really know. So I can't really compare and say, but I do, I mean, I'm imagining for us, like when we sell a garment, we just, there's a very slim margin. It's the product, the materials that it costs us plus a margin to allow for selling it and then we double that price. So it's very clear and there's no huge margins built in anywhere at all for us. Um, I think the other brands who produce offshore and sell for a similar price as us must be making a really dramatically bigger margin than we are. But um, I just prefer not to really just keep myself in a little bit of a bubble about that and um, and not think about it because what we're doing, it works for us. And, um, you know, we've been able to have a really successful business and that's why I've kind of been I'm always a bit surprised about why not more people produce onshore. Um, and when we very first started as well, everyone was like, why are you, you're making onshore, like, what are you doing? <laughs> that you, that is just the worst idea. <laughs> and, um, yeah. And I remember when we opened the city store as well, and that was when the Emporium had just opened in the city and they were like, why are you opening a store? That is the worst idea. <laughs> but, um, 
Yeah, it's worked for us. It has worked for us. So actually all of that stuff I just prefer to sort of keep myself a bit ignorant of and, you know, we can, you know, we modestly keep going, we pay fairly, we pay people on time. That's enough, I think. And do you think that the customer knows the value that they're getting when they get a when they buy a kawaii garment? I'm not sure. That idea of value though, I find that really interesting. Um, because it's so different for everyone, right? But it's sort of intrinsic when you're shopping. <laughs> That's what you're thinking. And um I think that I've always wanted kawaii pieces to feel like they were really good value for money. Like literally that you pick it up and you go, wow, that's actually really good for the price. And that's why we've always kept our prices like on the, I mean, they're not a cheap product, but it's on the lower side of what you'd pay for a really beautifully made um, quality item made locally. And that's also about partially about accessibility as well, like wanting it to be, um, you know, accessible even for customers who save up and save up and they buy that one special piece a season or one special piece a year, but it is something that you can kind of, that's relatively accessible for people. What are the other benefits of, of um, making locally? There's a lot, like having the relationship with our makers, that's really important to me and the business. We have the same two makers that have been sewing the kawaii products for the last 13 years and they just like they actually really love working on our pieces. <laughs> I don't know why. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, they love they love it because it's it's sort of like there's a simplicity to the kawaii pieces. They're designed, I guess. I'm always thinking like how can I make this simpler? simpler to cut, simpler to sew, but still make it really beautiful. So they appreciate that simplicity in the construction because it's like quite easy for them to make. There's a real sense of satisfaction, I think, when they're making these beautiful things. They're very proud of them at the end. Um, and, of course, there's an element of responsiveness as well, and that's never been felt more probably in the last than in the last 18 months. And we were so lucky or you know just in the way that COVID worked for us we um we had already finished all of our design and production in time for the first lockdown and then we kind of snuck out next lot of design and production in so we've just been able to slot it in um and because our makers are local we could be dropping things off while they work on them from home so um, I mean, I think there's been a very big shift towards made in Australia mm. lately, and that's not necessarily for ethics. I don't think it's just more about like the <laughs> the safety of protecting your supply chain. Sure. Yep. Um, but yeah, it means a lot to us, and I mean, we really love that we're kind of contributing to the local community as well and the local economy. Like our, it's all very. I mean, I don't want to sound too nationalistic, but <laughs> it's all kind of helping out our local community, local people. Just finally, I think uh, it would be interesting just to have a quick chat about um, the the this kind of leadership role, I suppose, that 
that Kawhi has started to to take. How much further do you think that other brands have to go and how important is it, you know, for, for brands like Kawhi to kind of set the standard? Well, I mean, I, I'm not sure if we are the gold standard, are we? <laughs> Thank you. I, well. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I guess it, it so depends, doesn't it? Because there are other brands and maybe they're not fashion brands out there who are doing like the radical transparency, you know, like really trying to take it that extra step. Um, and, yeah, are they... Are they the gold standard? I'm not sure. Are we, I mean, all we sort of, we just keep on going, like improving on what we've got, just building on what's worked and adding to what we've created. Um, yeah, it's hard to know. So do you think that the typical consumer still has a long way to go in terms of their education around sustainability? And does, does the typical or average consumer care as much as a brand like Kawhi does about sustainability? Yeah, well, that that's another sort of issue, isn't it? Because the issue, the issue one is like what should brands reveal and issue two is what do customers care about or do customers actually care? <laughs> and um, I don't really know. There's a really interesting campaign recently that I saw by an international brand, Ghani, and they have said, basically said, we're not sustainable. <laughs> like that's their campaign. Sorry, we're not sustainable. And that's like a really well-loved, adored brand, I would say. So, yeah, it's, there's, I if, if anything, I feel like the time of COVID has created maybe slightly more, polarization in people with this I do think that there's been like a bit of a move moving again away from sustainability or from the care of it that's come along with COVID because people's priorities have been shifted in a way that they didn't expect um so I'm sorry I'm really waffling on no no no, not at all not at all um I think I think you're absolutely right I think people um have had other priorities really and I think there's only so much um you know people have been really tested so I think that these things that perhaps require a bit of additional thinking is you know so fall to the wayside a bit yeah and I mean isn't that an interesting thought if like the movement there is a different movement now that started to bubble up which is like sort of an anti-sustainability movement or just, you know, like obviously unsustainable and that's their motto. I mean, that's just a hypothetical, but this one brand I'm talking about, like it does sort of, you know, could that be the next cycle that we're about to witness? And how has it been received, this, their um, uh, new sort of collection or attitude? I think that people are fine with it. <laughs> I think because um, it's honest. It's honest. They're honestly saying we're not that sustainable. Sorry, we probably should do more, but we're not going to. And um, and I guess like that is transparent in a way. It is transparent. It's um, I think that's probably a signifier of 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 what. Yeah, what the consumer is doing as well, hey? People are probably thinking, hey, sorry, I'm just not going to do that. 
Yeah. Yeah, I think so. So, I mean, time will tell. But for us, we'll just keep going, like adding more, you know, when things change in the world, we try and do more if we can then. And, um, yeah, and hopefully that's enough or more than enough for our customers and for the people who care about what we're doing. Christy, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much, Ben. It's been a pleasure. Very fun. Thanks for listening to Make Good. If you'd like to learn more about Kauai, check out www.kauai.com.au. That's K-U-W-A-I-I.com.au or their Instagram at instagram.com forward slash Kauai. If you'd like to hear more of Make Good, please subscribe to the show on your podcasting service. If you have any feedback at all about the podcast, please email me at makegood at dreamalab.com.au. The intro and outro music was made by me, Ben Shields. I make music under the name Dull Reality. And this podcast was brought to you by Dreamer. We are an architecture and design studio in Brunswick, Melbourne, Australia. If you'd like to learn more about Dreamer and the work that we do, please visit our website at www.dreamalab.com.au or get in touch at studio at dreamalab.com.au Catch you next time.